for me, it resulted in the sort of first part of my life, uh, right up until I would say my late 20s, where I sought respite or relief from these terrible feelings of just not belonging anywhere and therefore not having any sense of identity. Um, you know, all kinds of uh, problematic behaviours uh, were my repertoire. I believe everybody has a story and Dhani has been all about these stories coming from opinions, personal experiences, life lessons and so much more. And somewhere along the lines, we find ourselves being part of these stories or they being part of us in nooks and crannies, in crumbs, in echoes and reflections. And today I'm in conversation with Maya Rasker-Wolfish, who lives in London and she works as a psychoanalytic, psychotherapist and educator. She specialized in working with people whose lives have been impacted by the Holocaust and other displacement trauma. She's the author of a book called Letters to Breslau, which is currently out in German and the English version still awaits a publisher. The book um, is basically a memoir with a series of letters addressed to her maternal grandparents who were murdered by the Nazis in the Izbika concentration camp. In this podcast, we talk about trauma, transgenerational trauma, Maya's own experience of dealing with the trauma, of coming out of it, of writing down her memoirs, her struggles as a child and her struggles as an adult. This podcast is nothing short of being heart-wrenching, yet there's a certain sensitivity, a certain warmth encapsulating the whole thing. Maya, thank you so much for being here, for being on Dhani. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Maya, there you've uh, just very recently written a book called um, Letters to Breslau, which is at the moment in German, and I am waiting for it to be translated in English ASAP. Um, and I have seen some of your um, some of your work and some of your talks on YouTube as well. Mm-hmm. You have worked with people who have been suffering from um, dislocation trauma. You have um, a familial connection with the Holocaust as well. Mm-hmm. And you are also a practicing therapist in London. Correct. So bringing all of this together and weaving in your personal story, tell us what transgenerational trauma is. Well, transgenerational trauma for me describes the experience of people who may have been uh, not born in the country that their parents were as a result of 
one trauma or another, be it war, be it famine, be it any sort of crises leaving of uh, country of origin, and who find themselves born in a culture and in a country that is not in their bones, is not in their blood, is not in their psyche. Not a not a sort of a description or a context that is has been commonly talked about or thought about. So this creates for many people a very profound problem of unbelonging. And more recently described by myself and other people, I think, in the field as transgenerational trauma, the trauma that crosses over the first generation of uh, immigrants, let's say, refugees, to the first born in the new country. So that that's the sort of background or landscape that I sort of enter into the subject, and that's obviously because of my personal experience of that. And um, the sort of otherness that one carries is deeply problematic, particularly when, as was the case in my background, you know that there's a terrible reason that you mm. don't know why you've ended up in this place. Mm. So I think um, it's very recent, very recent, and I would say as recent as, uh, I wouldn't say more than 10 years, that a new language has appeared, partly maybe pioneered by me and others, where we begin to have some words to describe, therefore provide context for beginning to think about and understand what on earth might have happened that we feel so deeply disconnected from the place that we have lived all of our lives. So how did you discover what exactly did you go through and when? When well, you had this feeling of disconnect, of otherness, of feeling alienated? Mm. Well, I think, I mean, it's a big question with a big answer in that, you know, I, we I went through my lifetime till the last five years carrying this sense of profound dislocation, always trying to find ways to not feel it, to not know it, to, you know, to struggle through. And much of my life, without in any way wishing to sound uh, victim, like a, a victim, because I've worked very hard to get away from that. But for me, it resulted in the sort of first part of my life, uh, right up until I would say my late 20s, where I sought respite or relief from these terrible feelings of just not belonging anywhere and therefore not having any sense of identity. Um, you know, all kinds of uh, problematic behaviours uh, were my repertoire. But I absolutely say and, and firmly believe that, for example, you know, it's well documented, so I have no problem disclosing it, that I was a drug addict for many years. 
And drugs actually saved me. You know, they could have killed me, but they saved me because for several years, you know, it offered me um, an escape. And at least I had some identity. I was Maya the drug addict. It was better than not being anybody. Now, was, I am not in any way glorifying those years because they were terrible, but they were necessary. And I actually believe that I would have committed suicide had I not been a drug addict. So, and I do not recommend or advocate this as a solution, but, you know, that, that was part of my story. So, but everybody always felt, and I was always told that I was the problem, you know, I was a big problem. But actually, the problem was my environment and the disavowal of there being anything strange about my environment. So, you know, inevitably, you end up being blamed or, you know, being the problem. And I absolutely was the problem. But, you know, until I came to understand, and as I've said, uh, the, the level of understanding I've arrived at now was just not available in any way most of my life because it wasn't a subject that people talked about. Mm. You know, and I really believe that, well, it's sort of obvious, but you have to have contexts in which to have these kinds of conversations. You know, this is a context, okay? You've invited me to talk about this subject, which we hope will reach people who will begin to maybe connect in some way to a deep sense of, something being wrong somewhere and maybe be able to make sense of it through looking at their lineage uh, where they live their lives how they live their lives um, and what is it perhaps in their family background that might have had a profound effect but isn't necessarily known about um yeah so Sorry, can I cut you short quickly over here? When you when you said that you were a problem, yes. how was that problem manifesting itself? Was it some mood or was it, say, an upset tummy, nightmares, oh, well, temper I mean, tantrums? Well, as, a, as an infant, I was inconsolable, apparently. Mm. So, and I could not cope with I had massive separation anxiety but you have to put that into context of the fact that my mother had to be away for weeks at a time she was a musician and had to go on tour so I was left in very inadequate care which I could not manage so apparently I was not comfortable other than with food so I was overfed and becoming an obese infant and I mean two-year-old and I would began to self-harm from a very young age two or three where I would scratch my face and visually anybody looking at me would have must have thought what is wrong with this child so you know it began with an overfeeding because that was the only way I could be consoled and a self-attacking I was often sent away to places because I had to be looked after. And I had an intolerable sense of uh, loss and despair. Um, and 
you know, always sought something to attach myself to, a good or bad. So really there were very few behaviours that I didn't indulge in that were all attempts to have someone pay attention to me. So, yeah, you know, and then I'm sure I know there was a phase where I was very angry and full of rage and quite destructive. Um, but it was always understood as, as I said, Maya is the problem. So I would be taken, you know, to see various professionals and what have you. And I was something of a mystery, you know, nobody, nobody could ever sort of really diagnose or think about what it might be that was wrong with me. You know, we're talking now England in the late 60s, early 70s. So Mm. trying to sort of imagine what the resources were like then. And my parents sort of absence of resources as well to to find appropriate help. Um, So I think, you know, I always knew I had to try to make myself feel better. That was always a very strong drive in me. Mm. And because it wasn't available in people, I found it in things. Sure, yeah. Sort of drowning yourself, as you're saying, in things. But yeah. then, so what, then what, what happened? What made you think or work towards, as you said, going back into your lineage and to find out that, the problem really did not lie with you and it was something that you were carrying within your genes. Mm. Well, you know, it was actually, because of course I haven't spent the, you know, I stopped taking drugs in my early 30s and sort of lived a fairly, you know, stable life and trained to be a psychotherapist and so on and so forth. Um, Got married, had children, but... I always felt, um, you know, I hadn't arrived. This was not, I wasn't in my life fully. And um, how I, and I, you know, and I've been in many therapies, but never in a therapy that actually helped me. Um, never in a therapy that I could actually identify the things that I was experiencing and to help me understand them. And really what happened to me was a sort of a beautiful kind of epiphany where, and and not long ago, so you have to think that, you know, I was living a perfectly successful life with a good practice and several patients, but a deep, profound gap inside me, you know, and and I sort of knew that this wasn't something to do with finding the right man or finding the right, you know, no. This was something much deeper, and I knew it was to do with my identity. And I c- happened to come from a family who were very much in the public eye, and I was the invisible one. I was either the problem or I was the invisible one. And I really, really had enough of it. So what happened for me was, uh, it was a sort of a process of a, that happened over a few years where I liberated myself. And I mean it very literally. And what happened was that I, um, we were all in uh, LA for a, a wedding. There was like this very strange invasion of bullfishes in Los Angeles, poor Los <laughs> Angeles, of 
we were there because my nephew lives in LA, was getting married. My son was studying at UCLA. And there was a third reason we were there. Oh, yes, my mother was having a film made uh, in the Shoah Foundation. So uh, we were there, and I, I had never been to LA before, and I really liked it. And I was very depressed when we came back. And I decided I needed to get back to LA very quickly. But for what reason? So I Googled, as was my way in those days, Holocaust conferences. Mm. <laughs> found the next weekend there happened to be some kind of a Holocaust conference happening in exactly the right place, LA. So I didn't tell anybody. I booked myself a ticket and the next week I went back to LA for three days. Now crazy. I mean, if I told anybody, they said, you're mad. Well, you know, I'm used to people telling me I'm mad, but I, I was on a mission and it had nothing to do with the conference. The conference was crap, but it got me to LA again. And I knew that I was onto something. I didn't know what, but I knew I was onto something. And I realized in that three days, as, as I got on the plane to come back to London, I said, and I don't know if I said it to myself or I said it out loud, but I said, Maya, you need to grow a bigger life. And something and I'm not spiritual, so, you know, what I say, it wasn't like a, you know, some awakening. It was an epiphany. Something opened up. And I suddenly had a sense of myself as realizing that it was all up to me. And realizing that subconsciously I had been waiting all my life for somebody to come along and give me opportunities or tell me what to do when actually you know part of my problem has been my mother's always told me what to do which meant for example if I told her I want to go to LA for three days she would have said you can't go you're crazy mm -hmm. so I suddenly aged 56 at the time 57 thought you know Maya this is it now you've got to really just do what you want to do and you know I don't know and that's and from that I began to just go. Oh yes, yeah. so then I, then I I decided I needed to sort of just travel. So I I began traveling and feeling my feeling myself in a very different way in the world. And then I went back to Germany, but I began to go back to Germany on my terms. So it was my Germany. It wasn't my mother's, and it wasn't. And it was to a part of Germany as well then that we didn't have a particular connection to, but I did. And it was there that I realized as I was walking around by myself, what I needed to do. And I realized I needed to write my memoirs and how I needed to write them. I realized that, and then I realized also that um, my mother was speaking in the German parliament two years ago, three years ago, a very big uh, Holocaust memorial event. And I was sitting there in this, in this place, how crazy, all the, you know, in the place, country where my family had been murdered. 
And I also realized and thought about, well, what do all these sort of Memorial Days really mean? And what does what difference does it make in the world that today, this date, we remember this or we remember that? Does it make any difference in the world? And of course it doesn't. You know, all the symbols and knighthoods and gongs. My mother has so many gongs, they must weigh a ton, you know, honors for this. But it doesn't change anything. Mm. I realized that my other task was to become, in a very small way, something of an activist in areas that I was personally affected by and that inevitably many other people would be too. So I experienced this kind of, I came to life and I went and proposed all of my plans, which were pretty big to different people in Germany, all in Berlin, and everybody said yes to me. Mm. Now, I had spent a lifetime with people saying no. Mm. So I, I was literally, I can't even begin to put words to what that was like for me. It was joy, it was joy. Let's call it joy, because I think it's the closest to joy I will ever get, and it's more than enough. So I went with my ideas, which went from my book proposal to producing my family story for the stage to, um, you know, all the other things I'm doing. And everybody said yes. And I've done them. I did it. I've done them. And I've been given my life back, the life that I was meant to have in the country that I was meant to have had my life in. Now, in Berlin, I feel surrounded. And listen, I'm not idolizing because there's terrible things go on there too still. But what I am connected to has not been destroyed. Mm. And I feel in my interests and my intellect and my, the things I want to talk about, I, I don't have, I have an audience, but I have much more than an audience. I have people that reflect back to me what it is that I'm talking about, because we share something. Mm. And these are not, I'm not talking about Jewish people. I have, I'm not interested in, that doesn't interest me. I'm, I'm sure. in just people, you know, human beings. So, you know, for example, I just came back from, uh, where was I, Hamburg, and with an audience of 14 million people on a talk show. Um, wow. With my mother as well. It was incredible. Um, and people are, are really interested in what I have to say. Suddenly, suddenly. Now, you know, you said, which makes, it's kind of interesting, but you said, as many people have, I can't wait for your book to be in English. Well, let me tell you, England isn't interested. Oh, dear. Yeah. So <laughs> I, you know, fortunately for me, when I had my epiphany, I wanted my book to be written in German for Germany because it was a gift to my grandparents. It was, it was to be the place, because there are no graves, the place where three generations, mine, my mother's, and my grandparents would have a resting place, and I did it. Mm -hmm. So I never had any wishes for it to be in English, 
But of course, I end up not down to me, but in the top publishing house in Germany and foreign rights. And I said to them, England won't be interested. They, they didn't believe me. Now, my book is a bestseller. It's in its fifth edition in two or three months. And nobody in England is biting. Now, what I've experienced in lack of interest in my subject and, you know, the subject that affects so many others, there is no real interest here. And I'm not wrong about that. So it's interesting, but that's how it is. That is how it is that so far the English, in terms of an English language edition, have not uh, shown any interest. And um, I'm quite, in a way, my wish would be Canada or America, simply because there are more people like me there. There are very few people like me here, as in Holocaust, second generation. But it's a big worry, isn't it, that, you know, that is the way the Brits have responded. So there is something worrying in the absence of real interest in such an important subject. And it doesn't matter that it's my book. I mean, I've had more than enough reward, you know, from having achieved far more than I thought my book would ever do. You know, I, I never thought of it as being a bestseller or anything mm. like that. So I've, you know, this is not a, in a, a wound to me, but sure. it's very striking. That this is I'm just, yeah, I'm just wondering the, sometimes you, you know, there's a, an individual delay or denial to accept things and sometimes it's a societal and sometimes it's actually a national delay or denial yeah yeah and perhaps that's what it is <laughs> well yeah I mean I, I think sadly Holocaust education in this country is not great um, but you know I've lived here and I'm on my way out thank God for 60 years and I have never ever felt really welcome and I have never felt uh, sort of really valued mm -hmm. and um, you know I don't know what your experience is like but you know if, I, if I'm asked to do something um, here and I, obviously I'm not referring to this but if I speak at an event or something, I'm, there's, a, there's a way in which one's meant to be really grateful just to be asked. Now, um, I'm, you know, I, I and it, it's, it's about something else. It's about an absence of, actually, it's an absence of, of respect, you know, because I think there's something that happens that um, is very strange in the culture here, that, that I have had such different experience um, in other places. Um, and I don't really want to be part of it anymore. You know, I always want to help if I can. But I, I have spent most of my life fighting and I can't do it anymore. Mm. And I'm just very grateful that I found it somewhere else. And I think the fact that my own trauma has found a massive uh, where, sort of pathway to 
healing, not a word I want to use, but I have found the most energized version of myself. Brilliant. Brilliant. I really, yeah, and it is. It, it, I, you know, I walk the streets of Berlin and I don't know where I'm going half the time, but I really enjoy it, you know, and I just feel... I know that there is in the air a people who may not be here anymore physically, but they are with me. So I walk with a kind of beautiful entitlement. Mm. You know, I'm meant to be there. I am. I, I know. I have never felt more that I'm that I'm living the right life than when I'm there. Mm. I'm, Almost like a rebirth. Yeah. It's a lot of years living the wrong life. Mm. You know, fortunately, I'm very, you know, productive. And fortunately for me, touch wood, I'm in reasonable health and I've got loads of energy. So, you know. Maya, uh, just coming towards the end of the podcast, you, as you just, just took us through um, your entire journey when some of us feel and of, of course this is for the listeners we feel we feel uprooted we feel floating yeah. somewhere yeah. Uh, irrespective of whatever age we are and where we stand yeah. in terms of being a wife or a mother or a daughter what what would you suggest three things that one can do to find some sort of an anchor. I, I I know that you know that 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 knowing feeling can can eat you up to such an extent, as you said, which can lead you uh, astray, and it can weaken you or it can strengthen you. But once we have that feeling of uh, uprootedness, mm. three things. Well, I don't know if I can get to three, but the first, because I want I want them to be genuine and spontaneous. The first, I would say, pay attention to that feeling that you have. Mm. It's real. Mm. Pay attention to it. That there is something, you know, very literal about the sense of uprootedness. I, you know, you haven't been born in the country of your parents, let's say. If you can, I would encourage engagement with that find out find out if you can what your parents story was or is gently because many many people don't want to to go there sure and thirdly if that isn't available reach out reach out to people that are interested in in what you have to say and that's not necessarily in the professional domain you know an interested listener is the most healing thing you know so, so that's what i would say but pay attention pay attention never let anyone tell you you're crazy or you know that was years ago or you know you, you you've had everything the kind of things that you know typical i think typical things to say Pay attention to your own truth because it will be real. Mm. Beautiful, brilliant. 
Maya, I can't thank you enough. And again, fingers crossed. Wherever you do find uh, the book yeah. being published in English, I am <laughs> keep me keep me in the loop. Thank you so Love much you. for your time, and it was absolutely talk wonderful talking to you. Sorry. Many thanks. <laughs>